and welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited, well, I'm a little extra excited today. Um, I've got Mr. Murray Rogers, the author of The Psychedelic CEO on the line, and I had the privilege of being introduced through a mutual friend, which is which is how this world works. Um, to, to Murray, about a week ago, we chatted. He was very kind to drop off his latest book on my doorstep last uh, Friday afternoon, and it almost, it almost got washed away in the rainstorm we had last Friday, but I saved it in the final moments. And then I couldn't put it down. Uh, so I powered through this book. So Marie, I feel like we're already close friends because I've been reading your story here intimately like every day for the last five days. So welcome to the show and thanks for taking the time to come on. It's good to meet you. Uh, my pleasure, Tyler. Thanks so much for your interest and for taking the time to read the book. It's not often that somebody would be through, go through anyone's book in a few days. So... Very gratifying. Was, Thank you. It was a page turner. I could I could not put it down. It's a you know area of interest for me and the way you articulate it. But hey, why why would I talk to to tell people what the book is all about when I've actually got the author on the line? So Murray, give us a little bit of a story. You wrote a book in nine months over COVID, um, a book about a, a journey and a sounds like a significant shift in the way you engage with the world. So maybe I'll, if that's the right way to start it, I'll turn it over to you for a second. Give us a little bit of the backstory. Sure. Well, I spent. Uh I spent 35 years in working in the energy business around the world and uh, had been a company founder and a company leader, a CEO, and, and I'd worked with teams in many different countries. And so um, it had had a very broad and interesting professional life. And outwardly, it seemed like that was a very successful life. And uh, it, you know, by all objective standards, it seemed like I'd had a pretty, pretty darn good career and a good life. But also had gone through a divorce, I'd gone through a failed company, I'd gone through bouts of binge drinking, I'd gone through all kinds of internal uh, challenges through the entire course of my, inter- my entire life. So outwardly, I was living a very successful life, but I'd always suffered from low-grade depression, low-grade sadness, suicidal feelings at times, wondering why I was even on this planet. And meanwhile, I kept pushing, pushing, pushing to achieve and um, at the age of 60, at my 60th birthday, I found myself sitting alone in my big house in Bragg Creek, um, watching a rewrite, a movie called Rewrite, which was a Hugh Grant movie. It was just a fluke. I was drinking a bottle of wine. I was on my own. I hadn't bothered to reach out and have a birthday celebration. And I thought, there was something really wrong with me. And then this movie popped up on the screen, and uh, it's called Rewrite, and it's about a guy that <laughs> was kind of like me. had been really successful at one thing, but then kind of fell off and looked at all the mistakes he'd made and all the dysfunction he'd had along that journey, and he had to do a complete rewrite of his life. And I thought, okay, I'm being told something. So <laughs> for the next couple of years, I, uh, I really did very little. I did very little in business. I, I tried to pretend I was working on things because that's what you do in Calgary. People say, what are you up to? And you say, well, I'm working on this deal, and I'm doing that. And you don't want to tell people look, I am really, you know, in a bad way here and I'm not doing anything. But I got to a point where I said to people, I'm, do- I'm not doing anything. And they go, well, how can you do nothing? And I said, well, I'm doing nothing. What that meant for me was I, I did an enormous amount of reading, uh, read a ton of books, did a lot of personal reflection, uh, began to try to unravel why I'd had this underlying ache or, or uh, um pain within my heart and my soul my entire life. And after all this success, I really didn't feel successful at all. In fact, I felt like a failure. And so during that time, I also did some consciousness courses with the Monroe Institute. I did a shamanic retreat up in Field, BC, with uh, led by a, 
an American psychotherapist and shamanic woman named Karen Duncan, uh, who's a phenomenal person in her mid-70s, grandmother, studied in Peru for 25 years with the shamans and was a very adept spiritual person. And so I began to, and I took yoga teacher training with a, a male and female husband and wife team. So I was introduced to these concepts of the feminine um, through these different things I was doing, which I didn't know anything about. And I used to think, well, if it's feminine, it just means you're weak. In fact, what I began to experience was that it was the opposite, moving into the realm of the feminine and experiencing the teachings from these incredible women. Uh, there was enormous power and intelligence. And so I became very interested in the shamanic view of the world, which is we are connected to consciousness. We are all one. We are part of the plants. We're part of the animals and that type of thing. Still, it wasn't really doing the trick until I ran into an old friend who um, at a coffee shop. And I said, what are you up to? And she said, I'm going to Costa Rica to do this psychedelic ceremony. It's called ayahuasca. I'm going to a place called Rhythmia. And uh, I said, wow, you know, I, I'm really interested in that. I've been reading a lot about psychedelics, but they terrify me. Uh, but let me know how it goes. You know, it's kind of like that. So she, a month later, I just got a text from her, and it was one word, and the word said, go. <laughs> and so I thought, well, there we go, because I really trusted her. She's a very, very uh, intelligent and aware human being. And so I booked a, a week and off I went to Costa Rica. And so it was a profoundly life-changing week. I did four ceremonies in the first week. And then, you know, I was ready to leave. But the second week, there was a, a really, really um, powerful young shaman from Colombia was going to come called Taita Benito. And he was going to do two ceremonies the following week. And he's extremely highly regarded. He's in his mid-30s. I came to call him the Jimi Hendrix of shamanism because he's so talented and charismatic. I wanted to do this, but they had been sold out. So I thought, well, there's there's no slots. I can't do it. I walked up as I was checking out, and I asked them at the front desk, have you had any cancellations? They said, we've had one. And so, you know, that was a sign for me I should stay another week. And so the second week, I did four more ceremonies, and two of them within, with uh, Taito Juanito and his, his team of shamans. And it was just absolutely the most transformative and powerful uh, experience I'd ever had in my life. So over that two-week period, I essentially had spent three and a half full days, 24-hour days in altered states of consciousness, which is a lot of medicine in a short period of time. It's typically a lot of people do a week and then they're good for <laughs> maybe the rest of their lives. But anyway, it was a lot of medicine. It was highly concentrated and it really had a transformative effect on me. So one of the things that occurred to me at that time was wouldn't this be an amazing leadership tool? Because, you know, I had to I had to encounter my own dysfunctions, you know, and and my own negative traits in a very real way. It's like a death near-death experience. You're confronted with who you have become. But then you're also shown the divine aspect of your being, which is the most miraculous, beautiful, and loving experience. And so you work on two polarities here. But I thought, wouldn't this be great for business people? Because I'd seen a lot of behaviors like mine common throughout the business and throughout my my business life and I thought if, if we could even just develop a level of self-awareness uh, we'd never be perfect humans and we'll still make mistakes and we won't necessarily you know solve the company's business problems or the world's problems but if we could be better people more aware people within the leadership context wouldn't that be helpful and uh, these psychedelics are really a powerful and quick way to get there 
And you talk, so, you talk earlier on in the book, just to kind of bring it back to the start, because the book, you tackle quite a few different, you know, the leadership and the gap, but you know, exceptionalism is something that you bring up in the book, which I think is very prevalent. You know, we're, I'm in Calgary as well. And, but also the toxic masculinity that exists and you know, you made the comment about, well, if it's feminine, it must be, it must be weak and how much that culture still permeates. And you come from the oil and gas sector, which I think even from the outside has a bit of that reputation, which is not doing it certainly hasn't done it any favors and getting into your comments around being dinosaurs, which we can talk about, but just your own experience being a senior leader, working with your leadership teams as you started down, you know, and I came, you came to this path after, but that, that, that plague of exceptionalism combined with toxic masculinity, like how, how much of a factor is that in really holding us back and everything we want to do as, as leader, as humans for sure, but talking in the concept of leadership as, as in organizations. I think it holds us back tremendously and it creates tremendous amount of dysfunction because what I, the, the shamanic view of humans, you know, whether you agree with it or not, is that we're all wounded and we all experience a primary wound from somewhere from birth or even pre-birth to about the age of seven. And that primary wound shapes our behaviors on the planet. So we develop personas around it and we make choice, life choices around it. And we build ourselves up with these false personalities and identities around the wound. And that need to be exceptional in my particular case was wound-based. It was based on a very, very deep primal type of wounding that occurred in the early stages of my life. So I was never good enough. So I needed to be better. And before the medicine and before you had the opportunity to to see that or to be taken to that place where you could see that, I'm assuming also that was never even a thought. Like the concept of wounded, even talking about that in certain circles sounds, I'll be blunt, can be perceived as weak. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it gets flushed under the under the rug, under the rug, under the rug. <laughs> Completely. You know, that that the masculine culture that we, we've grown up in or that I've grown up in, mm-hmm. you just simply didn't ask for help. You didn't say you needed help and you didn't <laughs> oh, say that was, you didn't that was weak. anything. <laughs> You know, keep calm, and keep calm and carry really on, you know, with men. And I think with a lot of women as well. And I've, I've had a few, I've had a few guests on the show on my other show on collisions YYC. And these were women that had often operated in very senior male dominated roles. And, and they would say, Tyler, like, let's be clear. It's, this isn't male or female, this whole, that whole model, which you're describing doesn't work for most men either. So it's not often gets, you know, put into position of like, well, there's, you know, we need to bring more feminine into the business. And because it's, it's holding women back. I had her, uh, Jennifer Curry was her name and she was great. She said, Tyler, most men are getting, you know, are feeling completely unsupported in a corporate setting by this same phenomenon. So it isn't just male, female, which is what I'm hearing you say is there's the male, male, female spirit. And if we all can, if we are able to contain both, then that, you know, exceptionalism tied with toxic masculinity is holding everybody back, not just men or not women or women exclusively. Yes, exactly. And you know, that's an interesting point right there. The, the idea of the masculine and feminine, those are a lot of that comes out of Jungian analysis. It comes out of these indigenous traditions and many different thought forms in the world have talked about these different things, but the integration of masculine feminine energies and consciousness occurs should occur within the human being and therefore there's a there's an ultimate marriage of the two and that leads to unity and wholeness within oneself so the soul and the heart and the mind are all working together in in one kind of organism so we're not split the wound that the shamans talk about leaves us to feel split we're split in two. We're cut off from important parts of our nature. 
So that can be from masculine side or the feminine side, but we all carry these wounds and we're therefore split. One of the powers of the powerful outcomes of the psychedelic experience is it heals that split. So what I, it's so interesting, like masculine feminine is, is a way to label it, but yin and yang, like so many cultures have versions of this. So I love when you start to unpack this and everyone has their version of how they interpret it and religions or however you want to filter it. But when you boil it down, there's often those common threads you see through so many different cultures of that balanced concept. You're just having to use masculine and feminine in the way you're talking about it. That's how I see it. I don't know if that's, if that, the more you dig in, the more it seems to become the same when you get to deeper levels of different, different cultures and how they process what I think, what I'm hearing you say. It always becomes a limitation of language and semantics, but you're absolutely right. The point is the same. Human understanding always devolves, you know, real deep and correct human understanding devolves to understanding that there are masculine and feminine energies that when incorporated into the individual will be activated at the correct time in the correct way. So that's what is meant by balance. This idea of a balanced lifestyle has got has also got a, a whole masculine interpretation. It means don't work so many hours, have more fun, exercise, all that stuff. It's all externally directed. But yeah. no one ever, ever really challenges the idea of internal balance within corporate life. No, you're right. It's always stuff and things. It's always an mm-hmm. external activity. Take more time right. off. We leave early on a Friday, like, but you're right. not doing, none of that addresses. Because if you're at home wishing you were at the office, feeling like somehow you're failing corporately or vice versa, then really what, then is there any balance there at all? You're actually creating just a different version of the pain that you're suffering. So interesting. So for yourself prior to this, because again, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit just for the fun of it, because you know I'm a huge advocate of psychedelics and, and the, the opportunity they have. But some people might say, just for the sake of our conversation, well, can't you get there with just going to a therapist? Can't you get there by going to a psychologist or a counselor? You know, is there, you know, you did a lot of self-reflection and you were clearly, you clearly knew something was off and you were on a mission, but it sounds like before you were able to experience the medicine, that clarity that you seem to have, that you, that you not seem to have, that you have now just wasn't present until it you allowed the medicine or the medicine allows you to confront it head on. So curious your views of, is, is this something we can get to on our own or is, is the plant medicine that guide that we need that, that therapist through, you know, a natural source? It's a great question. And, and there's many, many ways to get to this. And there, you know, there's, there's prayer, there's meditation, there's, there are things like yoga and breath work, deep breath work. Um, therapy itself can be incredibly helpful for people just for the simple by the simple act of having someone to share with and someone to hold the space for you to talk to. That can be very therapeutic. I did several years of Jungian analysis back when I was uh, in my late 30s and early 40s, and so I became very acquainted with that modality of dream interpretation and the unconscious. So I had a lot of grounding with a fantastic uh, male therapist at that time, but and it helped me a lot. It helped me in many ways with my career, and it helped me to listen to my dreams and my unconscious information. But it still did not heal me because it still had an intellectual or egoic component to it, it had a thinking component to it. The you, power of things like... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. things like psychedelics or like breath work, which can be just as powerful as psychedelics, which is not a widely understood idea, but... The power of these things is they eclipse the mind and they take you right into the spot where you need healing, where you have no control. 
That's what we're really afraid of. We want to control the experience and control. Yes, the yes, 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 we do. I'm scared of losing control. What might you find there? You made the comment about near death experience. In your book, you reference it, and I've read it many times. That when we talk about death in this context, it's often referred to as the ego death. You just said that about, you know, you can intellectualize your way into understanding yourself, but are you really sidestepping the ego's kind of the way it protects us from some of those truths and protects the facade that, that we create? So when you say that near death, is that what you're referring to? Is that is that the ego death? Yes. Yeah, that, that is it. That's a exactly what it is and you know what's interesting is that some of the modern neuroscience research now into psychedelics is confirming the fact that the brain is changed under psychedelics and neural pathways that are common pathways in our daily lives which lead to worries and dysfunction and depression everything else those get interrupted and it's called the default mode network which gets interrupted and thrown into a state of momentary chaos and that's where ego death occurs. So in the brain function, that's kind of being corroborated in the in the neuroscience research realm right now that this ego death that Buddhist monks talked about is kind of something that happens in the brain where those habitual pathways are interrupted and new information can emerge. And there's some interesting FM. I think it's over in the UK that they're doing some of the fMRI work. I think we probably have read some of the similar Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind with Psychedelics. He really yes. unpacks some of the layers. And that's the first time I encountered the concept of, you know, as the default mode network either goes into entropy, chaos, or, you know, they almost refer to it as going offline, allowing all like, oh, I'd never thought, I never made that connection before. It's because there was something firmly in place to stop that connection from happening. And that's that, that was very interesting to me because I love the belief of, you know, once you experience it, you don't need an fMRI machine to let you know that something happened, but in the world we live in, a, a little analytical left brain proof never, never hurts the storyline, <laughs> I think. Well, exactly. And I think that currently, this is what I've heard through the grapevine, a lot of the researchers are thinking, well, it's not just the default mode network. There's other things going on that we really can't quantify here. But what they do agree, and not that it's critical that, that neuroscience left brain researchers have to agree with anything that occurs on the spiritual healing level, but it <laughs> I is Yes, I appreciate that, that asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the average person wants to know that there's some kind of legitimacy to it. And if that's science, that kind of corroborates it, fair enough. But uh, what they are finding is that the healing that they're experiencing and all of the patients they work with occurs within the hallucinogenic state. They're saying that spiritual state, that unquantifiable state that we can't measure or even image seems to be where the healing occurs. Which I've also read there's some risk they feel that isolating the chemical compounds in a way that eliminates that hallucinogenic aspect, the visioning, actually could rob you of what is the, the key element. And again, it's all speculation a little bit right now, but uh, we might science our way right out of it. And that's kind of, that feels a bit risky to me, even though I know there's still a whole world that's going to exist very holistically, but uh, uh, science is doing what science does well. It's isolating molecules. That's, it's, it's kind of its job, right? <laughs> In this context. <laughs> yes. Well, it's reductionist and it's mechanistic. And the reason that this is happening though is the governing bodies, the ruling bodies, uh, you know, that create the regulations, that sort of thing, are still a part of the dinosaur mindset. So they have a lot of fear around, you know, things they can't measure and control. The only way for the, res for the research is to legitimately get funding and to prove that this is a helpful medicine, which indeed it is, and everyone knows it is. The only way to get it through that system, that dinosaur system, is to try to back it up by so-called research or empirical analysis. 
And so there's we have to we have to play the game and the rules that are currently here. in place. Yeah, because what happens in the funding mechanisms in a lot of these universities and, and government agencies, if you start talking about unquantifiable spiritual, you know, transformation and that sort of thing, you're not going to get any funding. So if you can reduce it to a molecular explanation, you're more more likely going to get funding. So there's an agenda that a very intelligent agenda that the researchers have to adapt in order to get funding and keep going. Any thoughts? And this is maybe just a a potential hypothesis. Like why now? Because there's a lot of, when you start reading, you know, getting into the history and the research, there's a lot of people that are in the game that have been pushing this idea for 30 years around like, Hey, we knew this in the sixties. We knew that this was had benefit, but yet it was off the table. And now all of a sudden it seems to be every, you can't even, you brought it up that like a Netflix show or a prime show where they're doing psychedelics therapy or psilocybin. There's not a dinner party I go to that someone doesn't you know, overhear the word microdosing and want to know and want to know more. Any thoughts on the kind of the why, the why now? It's a great question. The shaman, Taito Winito, you know, who, who I've worked with has been asked that question several times. And he, he said, because the earth is in trouble and the earth is telling us, their spirits are telling us that we have to wake up or we won't exist. The earth will exist. We can't save the planet, but we need to save ourselves. And you know, decades ago, a lot of these shamanic groups, uh, these indigenous groups and their shamans would not share all of their secrets until there was a lot of trust established and people would have to go and spend years training with them to learn, you know, the methodologies and, and how to work with the plant medicine. But now they're making it accessible to the world because they've been told that this is urgent. The more people that wake up quickly the more likelihood we have that we will stave off this kind of catastrophic human decline. And you talk a lot in the book, and again, it's a comment, the idea of consciousness and, and the shared consciousness and the fact that there's that bigger. So when you think about that, you think about the earth and that we're all part of it <laughs> rather than, you know, the dinosaur model, which again, we don't want to give away all the holes. Like you talk about extensively of the dinosaur way of navigating the earth versus, you know, being part of it and being able to tap into that. That's what I'm hearing in, when, in, in the way that you say that and the medicine being kind of that direct line to Mother Earth, Gaia, you know, things that, you know, it's different words, are, different words are used. And you're right, if we're reaching a critical error, a, a critical time where we're, you know, how much farther can we go before we can pull it back or whatever that means? Like what you said, it's almost egotistical to think we can save the planet, but what are we going to do to save ourselves as an occupant of this amazing planet that we're on? <laughs> That's a different twist to that, that, that concept for me. <laughs> yeah, you framed that beautifully. And that is, that is the question. When, one of the outcomes for, for many people when they do psychedelics is they see themselves, we see ourselves as a, uh, just as an organism on the planet, no greater or less than any other life form. And we begin to tread more lightly and, and make different decisions on that basis. The way we treat one another, the way we treat our surroundings, the way we treat, you know, the natural world around us, it becomes a different experience. You tell a beautiful story, I think, near the end of the book that 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 hit me, and I've I've been carrying it around. Like again, I have, this book had a had a significant impact on me in the last. Uh, I don't remember the last time I read a book in five days, so that's the biggest compliment I can throw out there. But you talked about being, I think, downtown in your car. It was winter. It was cold. There was a gentleman um, panhandling or looking for a change, and you made the comment of like, "He is me, and I am him, and I'm him." And I'm probably paraphrasing it in the way that I, I've retained it. And I was driving around today, and I saw someone, and I had a very similar sensation of like, but it was more. 
what would it be like if I actually felt that first without like my analytical brain was processing the idea. I didn't just feel it from the heart. And I thought that was really powerful because we talk about being one with nature, but being one with other humans and to see someone in that situation could easily be reversed because we are the same person. And I'm still at the intellectual level of that concept, but that was powerful to me. And it was such a little snippet in the book, but it, it felt like back to as you integrated that into your life, those are the type of things that start to show up, which immediately change how you navigate. I can only imagine change how you navigate almost everything based on that one concept. Yeah, exactly. That's what it does. That's called empathy. And, and, and <laughs> yes, we have a word for it. <laughs> and it, and it becomes really a really predominant motif where you can't disassociate yourself from the other human being or another life form. We are just the same. And it's, we are only, we only have different circumstances to contend with. Well, it's, we I think, you know, cir circling same. back on, on leadership, well, it's not personal, it's just business. The second you say that, I know it's going to be personal as hell. <laughs> that Because we're we're really attempting to disassociate the human side of what are often tough and hard decisions that are sometimes made uh, from places of ego or places of, you know, not considering the human element and in business. That's a tricky balance sometimes because there are hard decisions that need to be made. But are you at least taking all, all elements into consideration? So how is the, have you had to, you know, I know you referenced, I think, Jan Eden in the book. How's the leadership community, sorry, the leadership training community, the management training community responded? Have you had a positive or did they feel a bit threatened by some of the, you take a very strong position that it's been grossly ineffective and highly amounts of money been spent on it with little to show for it. How's that industry responded to your your, your position? <laughs> well, I haven't, I don't, I haven't really moved the, the message into the leadership industry okay. uh, in an active way, maybe with doing podcasts such as this, I'll start to, you know, develop other forums for that. I have had a lot of sort of one-off type conversations with leaders who reacted generally, um, with a bit of defensiveness, a bit of protection around their way of life and their living. And because these are good people, they're all good people doing good things, believing they're doing good things and trying to do good things. So it, it's always delicate to say, look, we, we need to kind of accept this isn't working. But there's always outliers. People say, but it does work. I've helped this person. I've helped that person. And, and that's not to say it, it is all a complete failure. But as an industry, it's generally not working. And so... Answer your question is I, I I've had some resistance, let's put it that way, and some pushback. Um, but you know I have to just refer to this quote I put in the book from uh, one of the thought leaders in Europe. Jim, uh, his name is Jean Pietro uh, Petriglieri. He's he's well known with uh, within the world leadership research community and Harvard Business School and all that. His quote is this. Leadership development is one of very few industries that can chastise its own product and continue producing it. I, I remember that quote, yes. But to me, that was a show-stopping comment. <laughs> you, could unpack, you could have a whole podcast just on, on unpacking the realities on that, but taking it away from, this is still a bunch of humans having a shared experience, which at best is messy. And when you add the wound, which you talk about, or the traumas, or however you want to refer to it, and you throw us into a group, it's not certainly going to get better by its by accident. I wouldn't I wouldn't imagine. But there are going to be occasions when it does really work out because this these are there's a difference between you know I did something and it caused an outcome, and then having a negative intent. Like I th what you're, I think it's being okay to say there's a lot of positive intent out there, but is it still getting the best results we could from the situation versus saying, oh, there's a bunch of people intentionally doing bad things to other people. That, that, that's not what I'm hearing you say. And that's certainly not what I read in the book at all. Mm -hmm. No. And, and, um, 
and, you know, everyone's trying in their own way to make a difference. And, and I fully respect and appreciate that. But my only message is maybe let's just take a look and see if there are other tools that can help us be more effective in what we do. And I think if psychedelics ever do, when they hit the entire mainstream and are legal and that sort of thing, they'll just be a valuable part of that toolbox to create awareness and openness. And then some of these leadership tra- training people that have phenomenal programs on how to do things better and how to execute better than they can be more effective. I, I appreciate, I, I, I love, I'm a big, I love the metaphor of the toolkit. Roll it over, you know, go to this drawer, go to that drawer. They're all tools. There isn't one drawer that's better than the other, but it might be for the situation that you're in. So, so you show up in Costa Rica, um, you outlay this in the book and just for anybody who's listening going, okay, well, what is, what is an ayahuasca? I've had the privilege of had many friends that have done it. So I've, they've chatted with me about it and, and articulated their experience. And so you show up and you're, you're in a room with a bunch of people and all of a sudden this, you know, quote unquote ceremony begins. So the book, you describe it very well. So for anyone who's listening and they're kind of on the edge of the seat going, okay, guys, when are you going to tell me what it's actually, what it's actually like? So I don't know if you want to give a little bit of a kind of that first evening, because I'm assuming you went in with a lot of trepidation as maybe many of us would in that situation. It's a lot of, like you said, the, the risk of loss of control is real. I think for a lot of us, I, I think I would say that resonates broadly. <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, fear is the dominant feeling of the first experience, fear of the unknown and fear of loss of control. And, you know, in Rhythmia, they have their own way of doing it. Every every retreat does and every shaman does. But in Rhythmia, they, they say that it's preferable if you wear white clothing because it's honoring the spirit of the plant and that sort of thing. And But they also say, you know, there will be there can be a lot of purging in, in the ceremony, which get, freaks everyone out right away. I have heard this from people that have done it, yes. It's a real thing. You know, but purging can also be laughter. It can be crying. It can be sweating. It can be tremors and shakes. Invariably, though, the big ticket items are vomiting or, you know, having to uh, uh, go to the bathroom. Right <laughs> I appreciate now. you refer to those as big ticket items. <laughs> and, the showstoppers, if you will. <laughs> people, people focus on. They go, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I didn't want to vomit either. I mean, I was I was kind of like, oh man, I don't, I'm not sure I'm up for this. But everyone is, I would say almost everyone that is new to it, it has trepidation around that. But for that reason, I wore dark pants instead of white pants. I might lean. I, I might the, lean on your decision. Yeah, I just have to say, but I'm just wearing dark clothing. I think there's an old joke around fetch me my brown pants, but that's another, that's another joke for another day. So, and this so, takes place, you're in it, you're in it, like, is this an open air environment? Or are you all kind of sharing a, an well, it's, like, in a, it's in a big, big hall called a Malopa. And um, it's just like a giant kind of yoga studio. And uh, there are mattresses set out on the floor and everything is pristine and clean and, you know, perfectly hygienic. And yeah, at Rhythmia, they put a lot of people into these ceremonies, which is one of the criticisms people often have. They say, well, you can't have 60 people in a ceremony because it's too many. Uh, you should have intimate and small ones. And that's either, that can be true or not true, but it, it, the experience is still powerful. And so in this case, there's about 60 people and, and there are- That's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of human energy though in a room. So there's so two ways to look at that. Energy. Oh, I want it more intimate, but that in itself could power a small village just by the amount of energy that would be coming out of that space. <laughs> well, it could, and it's kind of a beautiful thing too. And it has this sacred element because most people with the exception of me were dressed in white and it looked beautiful and so people would go and choose a mattress so were you the one guy in the middle of all this wearing a black outfit murray <laughs> well there were a couple of, there were a couple of guys <laughs> i'm just i'm forming a mental same, picture of this here the same dinosaur mindset trying to outthink the ceremony uh, yes so i'd be how can i out intellectualize this which is the first trap it's one of the first traps to get out of right <laughs> absolutely that's that's the problem right there so 
anyway, you go and you, you take your mattress and you, you know, people just relax for a bit. And then uh, they have what they call a rape ceremony, which is optional, where you can go and sit in front of one of the shamans or his assistants and he'll blow this tobacco like powder up your nose, which it can be really in itself opening mind opening and almost like a like snuff like that's what i would think yeah, it's kind of like, like snuff okay yeah. and and they do that to give you an initial opening into mm. you know another state of consciousness you don't go into a major um you know hallucinogenic hallucinogenic state but you do kind of an opening feeling and you go and you sit down for a while and let that take effect and then they make the call to come and stand in line for the medicine and and we go and stand in single file lines and um you know, wait your turn to take the medicine. And so the, the shaman will look at you and say a prayer. And he, he breathes a prayer, a healing prayer into the medicine itself. And you drink it. And it's a black, muddy substance. It's I've, heard it's not a, I've heard it's not delicious. <laughs> it is not delicious. It's the furthest thing from delicious. And uh, it's just a thick mud, really. And it's, it's a combination of a vine and a plant. And they do their own sacred preparations with intention and all of that. So it's not like they just cut a bunch of stuff from the forest and make a tea. It's a very rigorous spiritual process for the shaman to create his own ayahuasca medicine. And so you drink it and you go and you just turn around and go and sit down. And within a half an hour, the entire room is changing. It's almost like there's this collective experience where it takes a while for the medicine to work. And most people are lying down by that point in time. And then the journeys begin, and they can last for up to 12 hours. During that evening and throughout the morning, there can be a call if anybody needs some second, wants second medicine or third medicine. They're welcome to come up and take a little more if they're coming out of their healing experience and they feel like they want to go back into it completely optional and then the night goes on and it's uh, a cacophony of human purging i understand <laughs> it's good to understand purging for all that it means you're purging feelings you need to get out uh, yeah not it's easy to think purging and go right to like you said <laughs> the big ticket items I like how you referred to but them. there's laughter and there's crying and there's you know all kinds of things going on but it's a deeply human experience and of course you're told to stay keep stay within your own sphere your own journey and not think about the person that's next to you and you know stay within your own journey it's it's a beautiful collective experience and by the morning like six in the morning whenever the sun comes up and the shaman makes the call to close the ceremony everyone gathers around in a big circle and they're disheveled and you know but the most striking thing is everyone's been opened up and humanized we all show up at these things with our personas intact. So people look good. Our, nice our, our armor, kind of, our armor, if yeah, you will. <laughs> we kind of judge each other and we kind of do that sort of social positioning thing. That After the first ceremony, that has all been swept away. You have a group of human beings that have walked into their own truth. And it's the most miraculous transformation. So there you now have a group of friends for life. What a powerful shared experience with 60 of your new closest friends. So interesting. And everybody having their own and just so I'm understanding it. And if I, if, and tell me if I'm right on this one, like anyone who's experienced, so we'll just use psilocybin, good old magic mushrooms. We've all been young and we've all taken it and gone outside and, Oh, the trees are moving and the walls are moving and that type of thing. Where what I understand from this, this is a hallucinogenic experience, but it's very internal. This isn't observing the outside world and seeing the walls moving. This is closing your eyes and being taken on a journey 
that's being guided by the medicine. So is that is that a, is, did I catch that right in terms of like how yeah, someone might be thinking complete, of it? The other completely right. I mean, you can have if you do open your eyes and go outside, you'll have some hallucinogenic experiences. I saw the trees dancing with me and all that stuff too. Like that's pretty common. But no, it's an internal journey. And here's what they say about ayahuasca: is that they call her Mother Ayah. She's a divine feminine spirit in that tradition that she takes you where you need to go. You don't have any control over it. She knows where your wounds are and she knows what you need to see and what you need to heal. So you're not controlling that journey at all. That's what's terrifying about it initially. And that's what's beautiful about it once you surrender to it. You've, you said some scary words. You're not in control and surrender for a lot of people that might be listening. And I, I have slight feelings when I hear you, when I hear you say those. And, but you did this multiple nights in a row. You did eight nights over a two-week period of time. Is it a similar version each time? Or is there a deeper, does, does the rabbit hole, and I don't know if that's a fair analogy, does the rabbit hole go deeper? Or is it just, okay, you, you're coming back, great. Well, let's show you this other element. Oh, you're coming back again, let's show you another one. It, back to you know, Mother Aya being the guide, is, that a, is it a progressive journey? Do you relive, do you go back to what you saw the night before? Or is it for you anyways, because obviously you can only speak to your own journey, was it progressive in your mind? It's, it's not linear, number okay. one. Yeah, sorry, so there's, there's my left brain wanting to put it in order. <laughs> it's, it's not sequential, okay. but you, you do go deeper and you see different things that you're supposed to see. Not, so each journey is completely different from the previous one. And you can't expect to repeat what you had the night before because that's control. you're starting to control the experience again and that just it can't happen. And sometimes you go into periods, I mean, I, there were a lot of people I, I learned that had done you know, several ayahuasca ceremonies and they didn't really have much of a transformative experience, maybe because their control was so strong, maybe their ego control was so strong. Who knows? It's different for everyone. But my experience is that each ceremony is its own journey, its own separate journey, but the outcomes are cumulative for you as the human being, but it is not linear. So you're taken to different places, to different parts of of your reality and other realities that you need to see and experience. And cumulatively, those begin to build out a broader human understanding. But you have no idea what each one is going to be. Well, depending depending how long or the life, we, we all have stories and belief structures and and we've built this up. And if we're getting a new set of way of engaging with the world, it's, it's there are building blocks. So I've often been told, and I believe this, that you know, when you're going into a ceremony like this, it's very important or very valuable to set, to have a, to set an intention. So curious if was that your experience, and wondering how aligned or not, just for the sake of the conversation of what your intention was going in, versus now it's been months and years later, and I understand you've you know kind of gone back for a, a reconnection to spirit. How did that original intention morph for you into kind of what you ended up receiving, like the gift you wanted versus the gift you got? <laughs> That's a really interesting question because when, when faced with a true intention, you know, when someone says to you, what, what do you really intend by this? A lot of times we can't answer it because you, a lot of what's going on is just in our brain. We have noisy thoughts about things. Well, I want to make more money. I want to understand why I'm sad. I don't know if I'm depressed. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Then when you get really pushed to it, you're not sure what you want to intend. In, in a journey like that. So what they did at Rhythmia, which was so helpful because they put about seven or 8,000 people through now, they know a lot of people struggle with intentions. And what they found was that the outcome that most people benefit the most from are the outcomes 
are associated with three intentions. And so they will say to you, look, if you can't come up with your own intention, we recommend you say these three intentions because they always work. And the first one is, show me who I've become. Now, if you think about that for a minute, well, what does that actually mean? Well, it means <laughs> show you who you are now with all your false beliefs and your dysfunctions and your, you know, illusions and things like that. Show me all that stuff that's a, that's not real. And that's a painful journey. That is a life review. And that happens for most people. You get, go through a kaleidoscope of life experiences and you go through a, a total review and you have to confront your ego, your exceptionalism, your, you know, all the ugly truths of yourself in order to let the beauty emerge. So show me who I become is a powerful intention. The second one is heal my heart because the shamans believe we're all brokenhearted from our wounds. And that needs to be healed. So for men to actually say, well, my intention is uh, I want to heal my heart. How many guys in business or sports or any of the male-dominated, you know, type of archetypal worlds that we come from would say that? We wouldn't. We wouldn't even say it to ourselves. So that was very useful for me to be coached on that. You know, well, heal my heart. I well, my broken hearted. I don't know. But, you know. So that was a powerful one. And the, and the, one the ego just, immediately steps in to respond to that question. <laughs> right. And then, and then the third one is uh, restore my soul, which is a really powerful one. And that takes you back to the pre-wound state. So you eclipse the mind with these things. They're very simple statements. You really can't analyze your way out of them. You just can say them and set them as an intention. And that is... And those are effective pathways to true healing. Again, it's I do really for everyone, that. but mm -hmm. these were helpful for me. Interesting. And would you say, and certainly from reading the book, it's it sounds like you 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 got to experience and and work through every one of those. Like if I think now to your story and I think of those intentions, it, it kind of lines up. Having just read your just you know read your book, where you're very transparent about the journey that you went on from from ancestral trauma and epidemiology and some of the things you went into at a, at a very deep level, you you got to see that in spades. And was that amplified? Do you think because you did the eight ceremonies in a condensed period of time? Or am I, am I, again, left-braining according to amount of times to amount of depth? Like, is that is that even relevant question? Well, yeah, it's, it's a good question, but it may not be. It may not be the right question. But the answer, the answer is, is interesting. I, I was taken through the life review of my very first ceremony. Like, it was so extraordinarily healing. It was, it was so much information about what my life had been and what it could be. And, and what was revealed to me. So that was a really powerful first ceremony. Um, the restoring my soul, interestingly, occurred in a breathwork session, but not in an ayahuasca journey. But the ayahuasca opens you up to other modalities of healing. So if you go to meditate after you've done psychedelics, and ayahuasca was my plant, but people do iboga, and they do, you know, bufo, and they do psilocybin. So I'm not saying it's the only one. It's just one. But my experience was that it opens you up to other healing modalities, such as breathwork and meditation is a completely different experience. Yoga is a completely different experience. But my soul healing occurred during breathwork. Uh, one hour breathwork session in an afternoon where I just had this miraculous shift in my awareness of who I was. The healing of the heart occurred in week two during Taitoinito's uh, ceremonies. So it's, it's a very individual thing. 
I appreciate that. I really like the concept of, you know, you, you, you come back as a different version and, uh, and how that allows you to have things you've done before meditation, yoga, breath work to have a different impact or have a different relationship with those, because ultimately you're a different version of you coming to do those again and being more open to that and being able to ultimately get, you know, quote unquote, get more benefit from it because you're allowing the benefit to happen. That's a, to me, that's an interesting concept. Just giving yeah, permission it, sometimes. Each of these, as we said earlier in the conversation, each of these, um, you know, tools is, is valuable in their own right. There's ways to get into these altered states of consciousness or higher sense of, of self or spirit, whatever you want to call it. But once you've been opened up with the psychedelic experience, these other tools are more effective. And, uh, even, even just breath work and yoga classes I teach, I teach yoga to men. You know, I tell the guys, look, the breath is just a circuit breaker between the mind and the body. So that's why we're breathing here. We're just trying to break that circuit momentarily so that the body's natural intelligence can emerge and your mind can get out of the way because it's not that smart. And psychedelics do that <laughs> in a very powerful way. And then your yoga classes, you're kind of there. Uh, so the body's natural intelligence. We don't, yeah, we don't, we, we oftentimes uh, with the ego and all the things in place, don't give that a chance to survive or don't give it a chance to, to shine, I guess, maybe. So thinking about uh, when did you first, uh, this has been about two years for, for you on this journey when you first about did your first year since that Costa Rican experience, two and a half, two and a half years in that time you've written the book, talk about integration and you talk about it in the book, but oftentimes, you know, let's go, let's use the leadership analogy. I go and do a retreat, a leadership retreat for the weekend. I come back and as a leader, I am just ready to rock. Uh, but two weeks later, later life gets busy. Stresses go up. I resort back to my, 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 my way to survive and get through my, my day. And some of those, what were probably amazing concepts go to the wayside. So for yourself coming back and integrating this into your life, how has that journey been, been for you and any, uh, any insights or thoughts for anybody also like, yeah, it's great to learn these things, but how do we then t like literally take it out for a drive and continue to ex explore as our, as our normal life? I'll be honest, attempts to sabotage <laughs> sometimes of that deeper consciousness. You know, it's, that's the, the key issue that, that exists in the psychedelic industry right now is how do you integrate that experience into your daily life? That is the key issue right now that a lot of therapy groups are, are grappling with, a lot of retreats are grappling with. They're fully aware of the fact that people can go off on these even psychedelic experiences and come back with this new information and then really are challenged to integrate it. I mean, I can say honestly that when I was, uh, when I came back, um, you know, I was a member of some, you know, business organizations and a board and so on. And I was on some of these business calls fairly shortly after returning from Costa Rica. And I, I couldn't help but say, but feel that everyone on the call was mentally ill. I just... <laughs> And these are good people, good good guys, good people. One hundred percent, you know, and and doing their best in the world. But with the perspective I had, I thought the things that are important in these calls are not important, and yet they become so important and drive our lives. And we're fighting for them, and we're arguing over them, and we're positioning over them, and. The whole thing struck me as kind of madness, you know, so it exposed me to the madness of kind of the way we think about modern life. But what also was important to me is that we stay really grounded in the world and find a way to come back into it with the knowledge. We're not doing anyone any good by just sitting on the sidelines, having done psychedelics and opining on things. We need to be back in the heart of things so we can help make a difference. 
So I got more and more engaged in business and more and more drawn into business. But with the caveat being I wanted to work with people that had at least a, a level of consciousness or awareness that I could relate to and that we could move together as human beings on these projects. And so the medicine introduced me to incredible people and, and continues to open up opportunities for me because I'm meeting other people that have done the medicine. And there seems to be a consciousness that connects us. It's not deliberate. It's not part of a career plan or anything, but it's kind of a miraculous opening of your life to a new sensibility. And you in, attract and draw in people that are similar. So I'm in the art of business still, yeah. but, but differently. Our mutual friend, Tina, who introduced us, you know, I've often heard her say like, Tyler, like they're my people. Like you'll like them because they're, they're, they're our people. You'll get it. And she says that. And you, you know, when you know what that means, you just know what it means. You don't have to, you know, it's kind of that, that get it factor. Yeah. So yeah, no, that, and it's so interesting. I love these people all have mental illness. I, Cause again, once you've seen a different way of filtering things and, but yet that was your world before. So that, that must've been just even interesting to almost look at your past identity versus your current. And you know, even, even that's a moment where that can be, that can be jarring. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. When you see it I mean, when, you, when you're confronted say, honestly, with it. I was mentally ill. You know, my, <laughs> my wounds had made me mentally ill because the things I put my attention and effort to were in fact false gods. So that's, that's mental illness, you know? And I, I like, are you seeing a trend in business and you refer in the book to dinosaurs, which is not necessarily age, but a way of, it's a more of a way of being and a way of kind of lumbering through the world, consuming without being, you know, in, in, in sync with it. But are you seeing a trend in business? And obviously in Calgary, we're seeing a huge you know, shift in the diversification of our economy, which I think is an easy thing to talk about, but it's seemingly starting to happen with the tech ecosystem. And is there a new wave of business and is, is there a newer generation coming in now that is looking to bring this into it? Or are we still making some of the same mistakes? Like I don't want to mistake the fact that I'm 25 with a startup idea and I'm going to be more open and more connected with my wounds than someone who's 60 and has been doing it for, for 30 years. It's easy to, I don't want to make that error, but are you seeing a change? Is there a consciousness that's, that's allowing newer startup or just companies in general to approach this differently? Absolutely. And do you have hope? Do you have hope, Murray? Do, Murray? do we have hope? Do we have hope? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. I'm glad That's you awesome. brought that up. You know, I was given a vision two and a half years ago in one of my ayahuasca ceremonies through Taito Juanito about Calgary, which is strange because I certainly didn't go down to Costa Rica to examine the Calgary business community. But you didn't I have your Calgary t shirt on? <laughs> <laughs> but I was shown this vision of Calgary as being an outdated thought form. And what emerged to me in this vision was like one of those giant, dark um, city spaceships, like in District 9 or Independence Day. You know, those that's, movies where District 9 is what I thought of when you were saying, that, hanging over the city. From space, it's, this, it's hanging over the city. And in this vision, it was hanging, the ship was hanging over the city and it was really dark. And it represented the old mindset of, of Calgary and of Alberta. And, but underlying that, the underlying message was, as that thought form disappears, there's this enormous spiritual, cognitive, intellectual, technical energy in Calgary that's waiting to emerge. And that was a really positive, uh, uplifting dream. That was two, two and a half years ago. And we are, to your point, we are seeing that today, that the younger generations, the newer generations are bringing that whole consciousness to the fore and replacing this old kind of dinosaur mindset, you know, which I was a part of. And, uh, you know, and I have to say, 
mainly generated by the women. Like, I have met so many phenomenal women of all, all ages now that are doing incredible things and their, their intelligence and their consciousness and their hearts and perspective is, is inspiring. So that feminine sensibility is really powerful and moving through and it's expanding what Calgary is going to be in the future. I agree. And I think it's good to clarify, or certainly my view is it's not just about new and young and new ideas. There's a lot of people that I meet that are 40s, 50s experienced, but they're willing and open to do things differently. They're thinking differently, which is allowing them to build. When you, when you talk about a new mindset, like that's a new mindset company doesn't mean someone's just young. I think that's an easy mistake to make sometimes like, oh, the, the youth are you know, like, I have so many people I come on the show. I could have a 30 year old or I could have a 60 year old, but there's shared values in like, no, no, we're going to do it differently. We're going to include, we're going to think bigger. We're going to, you know, think about the earth in a different way. And that, that still might be in the, in the resource, in the energy sector, but let's think about it as complementary, not extractive. And some of the words you you used in, in the book, and certainly I know as, as to be your history based on your career. Yeah, absolutely right. It's not related to age. It's re- related to consciousness, really, in your state of mind, right? So, uh, and when I re- use the term dinosaur, it is a state of mind that is disappearing and needs to disappear. And that's why I use the, you know, the mushroom. <laughs> it needs to make room for the, ne- for the next I round. I use the mushroom for the opposite metaphor of the dinosaur, because the mushroom you know, inhabits the ground and migrates and works in community and extends through vast, vast networks that nobody sees. It's not exceptional. And so that's the consciousness that is emerging where we're not exceptional. We're working together on things here, regardless of age and differences, you know, that, that is such a shift in terms of maybe the story. And we have to remember these stories that we've latched onto, they're not that old. Like we're, we're in cycles, but it feels like our cycle is the cycle, but it's not the case. There's been, you know, a communal approach to things, but you know, North American way and globally has been the exceptional and the, the star. We, when we showcase our stars, we do it in media, we do it in, the, in, in pop culture where, you know, I've read, I think it was, I forget the book about it. It was, it was about all the emerging tech giants, but then they talked about like, let's talk about how they built on each other. Let's go back to some of the original innovators in technology. And that is what allowed Bill Gates to do what he did, but you know, he gets the fame, but yet he built on how many layers of the last 150 years of evolution. If we start thinking that way as a society now, that's pretty much unlimited what we can accomplish. But anyway, so we're going off on a bit of a tangent here. <laughs> no, I know it's a great tangent because there's that need, that hunger and need that we have, which is wound based is we want somebody out there to know more than us. We want somebody that we can look up to and aspire to, but, you know, they're just other human beings, and invariably those people fall because they're shown to be human. And my whole message is don't look outward for a guru, either spiritually or in, a, in the business world. There aren't any. You're the guru of your own life. You know your own, you, you know your own truth. So if you want worth in your life, don't look externally for it. Look internally for it. And you have those answers, and there are tools available to get there. Uh, and I've had I've had some I've had this conversation. I like the guru word. Like sometimes that that's a that created that can create a lot of fear initially. And I've had a conversation with a close friend of mine. She's like, "You mean to tell me that I have my own answers? Like I don't I I can't even confront that realm of possibility. There was clearly a wound. There was because she got very defensive in the sense like to say that I have the answers. Like that's and and you know it was a conversation about God and religion and you know 
conventional religion and some of the fear of all of a sudden you expect me to take responsibility, didn't have answers for myself. And she had a hard time even with the concept. And it got, it was a friendly conversation that got quite emotional. And now they hear you talk about it, it's because we were both speaking from a place of a wound, not from a, from a place of, of, you know, it was power, driven by something else. True, and true, yeah. power, true power resides in the territory of having your own knowledge and your own your own truth and having walked your own journey. That's what real power is not power over others. It's power over your own experience within your own experience. And you're right. The conversation you were having with your friend was a wound based conversation. I have an example. I I have a great friend from my childhood who's extremely wealthy and successful. And, and um, he recently told me he bought an interest in a jet. And, uh, and so then we started talking about my book and I said, well, you know what I, and I wasn't in a lecturing mode at all. I was just describing my experience. I said, yeah, you know, what I've learned through the psychedelic experience that a lot of these things we do in our life, you know, those things we acquire more and more and more things and that are kind of based on a wound. You know, and I was just sharing an idea and his, his anger and rage and defensiveness was like a torrent. It was like, I'm not wounded. What do you mean? And there was a lot of vitriol and there was a very heated... And I'm like, dude, I'm just sharing an idea here. I'm not making a judgment. It's just an idea. But it triggered something very, very deep. Well, back to that. Yeah, wow. I, yes, very, very similar sim, similar conversation. Uh, so interesting. So curious, two and a half years, which in the scope of the world we live in is a, is a, is a, is a grain of sand of, of time. But how is like how are things progressing for you? How is this open to, you know, I'm just curious, kind of the, the road ahead, which is a funny, maybe a silly question, but I'm just curious, this feels like it's put you into a whole nother, you know, like level of vibration you talk about in the book and higher vibration. And you mentioned that it attracts different people. How are things just opened up for you since, since this? And you know, what's, when's the second book coming out? <laughs> That's even, <laughs> might be a ridiculous question. This book does, a, this book wraps it up and puts a very nice bow on the whole experience for sure. <laughs> Well, you know, it's... Uh, what am I going to read next week, Murray? I'm, I got no book right now. I'm waiting for you to come out in a second. <laughs> I'll send you an email. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Touche. <laughs> um, well, the, a lot of fantastic things have happened. I, I've um, The very first person I met in Costa Rica two and a half years ago, standing in line for my first medicine, was a guy standing right in front of me in line. He was covered in tattoos, really handsome guy, big buff guy. And we, he turned around and he started talking to me because he was freaking out and I was freaking out and turned out his name is Johnny Messner and he's an actor. He'd been an actor and is still an actor and producer in Hollywood and has been his whole life. And we've become great friends through the medicine, you know, as friends. But Johnny and I and, and others have started to develop um, movie and documentary concepts based around conscious things that we, we believe in. And so I've become very connected to that world um, in Hollywood and also the music industry in Nashville with people that are really into conscious content and that type of thing. And so the first project we've been working on is a documentary that may may or may not get fully up, get off the ground, but we've already done a sizzle reel where we are working with uh, Paula DeFlorio, who's an Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker, and her husband, Peter Rader, who wrote Waterworld and all kinds of other movies. They're kind of Hollywood insiders, but very... They're into the plant medicine consciousness. And so we've created a documentary idea on, it's called Deconstructing the Alpha Male. And so they've already done, shot some footage uh, 
Johnny works with and is good friends with Bruce Willis, and he produces all these Bruce Willis movies. Uh, they're sci-fi action movies, and they usually film them in Georgia. And so last year, um, we sent film crew down to the set in Georgia uh, to kind of film Bruce Willis as being the archetype of the alpha male, you know, in the movie industry. We use that as an example of kind of the false archetype that archetype that men build into or buy into. And, and then Johnny talked openly on, on film about his own transformative experiences. He was a Hollywood bad boy. I mean, he, was, he had addictions and, and issues with alcohol and so on and so forth that he will talk openly about. I mean, he's already on film talking about this and he's gone through an amazing transformation. And so he opened up the film set to the film crew, to our documentary crew, and turned out that many of the men on the crew uh, had really difficult, painful experiences, like Bruce Willis' body double, uh, you know, had had a tragic experience in his life. And the, all these men started talking openly in front of the camera about how challenging it was to be a male working in this archetypal male fantasy world of the movies they were making. And it's a we, fantasy. We, we have to remember it's made up. I know it's all it's, made so up, but it isn't isn't real. But we young boys buy into that. We bought into it. it Hook, line, and sinker. I would say we all <laughs> wanted to be that guy. And then um, we all we dovetail over to NFL football, where we've got an NFL uh, superstar that's talking openly about the issues he had with depression and some of the brain injuries he had, and how he's gone through a personal transformation. And you realize that that entire pro football world had a real toxic, destructive element to him as a man, as a young man. And so anyway, we've got a sizzle reel on that. We, we're not releasing it, but we're in the process of, of um, <clears throat> editing some other footage and that type of thing. So that's been one outcome, is I've been connected to this media world of people that are very interested in doing conscious content. Very interesting. And it's been... And, and with the, the means to, at scale, tell a powerful story. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I I do I do I do like using the tool on itself because I often have had conversations about the 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 Hollywood version of a leader and the Hollywood version of the general and the you know that whole like you said toxic masculinity and the alpha kind of concept. So I love to hear you know uh, using the same tool that created it to also combat it. <laughs> as far as you know, there's nothing better of a, a, to get a message across than a well done movie. You know, you add sight, sound, motion, and emotion. It's one of the best storytelling platforms you can you can access. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know another thing that the medicine has done. I, I recently had started advising a. A hydrogen company downtown. The CEO is a young entrepreneur, and he's trying to get this hydrogen story off the ground. And so I, I'm on an assignment to help him. So he had read my book, and that in, he then engaged me to give him some help. And so I'm walking down the hall the first day at this company, and the part-time CFO guy says, "Are you the guy that wrote that book, the psychedelic book?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Hmm, that's interesting." And then he carries on. The next day, I get a phone call from the therapy clinic in Calgary called Atma, who are the guys that did the legal psilocybin therapy back in January with the young man who was dying of cancer in Eritrea. So Atma is that legal Health Canada approved clinic. They uh, wanted a board member and a business advisor. And so that they now retained me. So it was the book that actually led me to Atma. So I've joined them as well. So I'm working with this psilocybin therapy company, building out their worldwide business model for training therapists in the use of psychedelics and they have support from health Canada to do so. That's so powerful. 
It, are you able to share if you're helping to put the, who's the hydrogen company? Cause that's on my other podcasts. I've been, I've, I've definitely have an intense interest in the opportunity that hydrogen has in our province right now. So who's, can you say the company is it? Yeah, the company is called Proton. Um, the CEO is Grant Stram. And uh, yeah, I've got Grant coming on the podcast in two weeks to talk okay. about their company. So yeah, oh, I wondered if it was Proton. Grant. That's why, that's so, why I asked. So yeah, yeah, I've not, I met their marketing guy. And uh, so yeah, I've got Grant connected in, I think maybe even next week or the week after the 16th to actually come on the show to talk about what they're doing. And it sounds like they have a very interesting, sorry, this is turning into a hydrogen podcast, a very interesting proprietary technology around the sequestration and leave mm -hmm. the carbon in the ground. Don't worry about putting it back afterwards. I'm very, I'm pretty excited about their concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is very exciting. Very cool. Small, small world, uh, Murray. If we keep talking, I'm sure we'll know. We'll we'll run into more and more people that we know together. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Like phenomenal conversation. Great job on the book. I like. I truly loved it. I hope that's. I'm pretty sure that came through in the call in the episode. How can people find find your book? What's What's the best way? It's on, just well, go to Amazon, Amazon. Go to the website. You can, you can either get the Kindle version or hard copy version on Amazon. Okay. And uh, I have a website. It's www.psychedelicceo.com. And there's a link to Amazon through that as well. I'm on LinkedIn. If anyone wants to reach out to me, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for one, you know, well, the, the sharing your journey, like thanking you for the journey you're on, but the vulnerability and the the strength to come forward and share it in the level of detail that you did. I think it creates a lot of permissibility for people that may be sitting on the outside going, oh, I don't know if this is for me and I have the fears and I have, you make it so approachable, but very so authentic and real through the course of the book and equally so in our conversation today. So thank, thank you for, for, for putting this out there into, into the universe. I think it only contributes to the greater good. So thanks for that. Well, thank you very much, Tyler. It's been a great, great conversation. I really appreciate your interest. My pleasure, Murray. I, I, I feel this is not, this might be the first, but it certainly will not be the last time that you and I chat. <laughs> Definitely not. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. <laughs>